Good morning, church. Uh, Let me welcome all of you who are joining us online. We are thrilled that you're here. This morning in our series, Navigating Life, we're dealing with the reality that stuff happens in our lives that is outside of our control. And if you were with us last week, you'll remember that we looked at this classic statement from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, and we agreed we were going to try and commit these words to memory, because not only are they important words for this series, the theme verse for the series, they are important words as we navigate the twists and turns of life itself. So I'm going to show you the words once on the screen to refresh your memory, and then we will say them together. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Let's say that together. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. We saw that all things happen to all people that believers and non-believers are equally afflicted with hard things and blessed by good things, that we all live in the same world, that sometimes for those who follow Jesus and love him with sincerity, there are still things in life that just don't work out. But God is still at work, and God is at work in all things. That's the good news, that he's working for good. But the hard part of the good news is that that doesn't always mean that the circumstances of my life, the adverse circumstances, the, the illness, the impoverishment, the, the fractured relationships, it doesn't always mean that those things get worked out or not immediately. What it means is that God wants to do good things in me. Not just that God is going to give good things to me, but God wants to do good things in me. And what he wants to do most in me is to mold and shape within me the character that was exemplified so perfectly in Jesus. He's working for the good of those who love him. Now, we mentioned last week, he's also working for the good of those who don't really know him at all. It's just, it's harder, isn't it? And Paul says that this isn't just something we're speculating about. We can know this. It's not a guess. It's not a hope that we live in this spectacular knowledge. So in this series, we're learning how we find God in the stuff of life from one moment to the next. And this weekend, we're going to deal with a reality, an important one, that something gives Something, something comes into our lives, something that God gives that is as outside of our control sometimes as those adverse circumstances that we want to avoid. Sometimes God gives healing. Some time ago, I was doing some construction in our backyard, construction that involved a hammer. And as part of the construction, being the formidable craftsperson that I am, I brought down the hammer full force right on my thumb. It sent into motion a series of events in my body that I wasn't even aware of, a series of biological responses through a process called nociception. A tremendous pain signal went up to my brain saying, 
Stop hitting yourself with the hammer. <laughs> but then, then this, this little cavalry of activity springs into motion. Little platelets rush immediately to the area where the injury was and they begin the clotting process. That stops the bleeding. It keeps infection from settling in. And then in the next phase, something called polymorphonuclear neutrophils flooded the area. Now, you better believe I practiced for a couple of days to say that. Polymorphonuclear neutrophils. And they began to eat up all of the bacteria. And they did that for a couple of days as, as the site turned kind of dark brown. But they're like the heroes in the story. And then they begin to eat up the bacteria. And, and then something called macrophages. They come on and they're like the cleanup crew. They're the Pac-Man. And they get rid of everything. And then there's a final phase in this healing called the remodeling phase. And for me, this actually took months. If you go back through some of our older videos, you'll see for months I had a blackened thumb. That's what it was about. It took a while, but eventually new tissue replaced the old damaged tissue. And what's astounding about all of this is that my body took care of it without me even really knowing what was happening. I wasn't marshalling the instructions. I wasn't saying to the platelets, you got to make your way down to my thumb. It was all happening without my awareness. And I learned two great lessons in the process. One of them is I probably shouldn't do any more chores around the house involving a hammer. It might damage my ability to be with my family and be with you. So family, I'm going to forsake all household chores from now on. <laughs> that was one lesson. But, but here's the other one. Healing happens. Healing happens. It's not always under my control. It's not always what I want. It's not always when I would want it or how I would want it. Sometimes healing leaves a scar. Sometimes you walk with a limp. But healing happens. It's an amazing thing about our world. And it doesn't just happen in our bodies. Have you ever walked through a forest that has fallen victim to a massive fire? And seen amidst the, the charred, burnt out kind of skeletal remains of the old forest, little green shoots beginning to emerge from the ground. In fact, as part of good forestry practice, arborists will sometimes introduce into a forest a controlled burn. They will burn a section of forest because they know that there are certain trees that will only let go of their seeds New life can only come when they are under great threat. And under great threat, healing in the forest begins. It's almost like God has woven healing into the biological fabric of how the earth itself works. Healing happens. A long time ago, a little group of people called Israel they saw this happening and they came to believe that it said something really significant about the kind of God that God really was. You know, one of the ways you can think about people, if you want to divide them up into camps, is that, that you are either a saver or you are a tosser. And, and you know the difference, right? Are you hesitant to let things go even when they're broken down, even when they're worn out? You're probably a saver. If you are quick to let things go and not seek out a repair, let's just get rid of it and start with something new, 
you're probably a tosser. Often in a marriage or sometimes in a family, you'll, you'll have at least one of each. I'm the tosser. I, I'm inclined to let things go when they're worn out. But Karina's a saver. Uh, she wants to nurture it. Let's hold on to it. Let's see if we can save it. Can we, can we redeem it? She just doesn't give up on things. And that's, well, that's probably really a good thing, at least for me, as I get older and, and more worn down and a little more rough around the edges. I married a saver. Well, in Israel, they came to believe that God is a saver, that he doesn't give up on things, that he doesn't look at a world racked in peril, filled with brokenness and evil and disease, and throw it all away. When stuff breaks, God wants to save it. That means he's a healer. It's why healing happens. And they would express this in the most amazing ways. Exodus 19, verse 4, says this. It says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you out to myself. They loved that image. They held on to it. A beautiful picture. A mother eagle, you know, if its eaglets are too young to fly, or if one of them has injured wings, will just tuck that little eaglet in underneath her massive wings and fly off with it. Well, over time, that image, that picture of being tucked away in the healing, protective wings of God became one of the most cherished images of God's protection and of God's healing. These words are from Psalm 91 in verse 4. Under his wings, under God's wings, you will find refuge. Our God is a healer. In fact, it's a really cool word. It's being used here in the Old Testament in the Hebrew language. The word that's used there for wings, God's wings, is the word kanaf. You might try and say that, kanaf. Interestingly, it's also the word that they used for a very special piece of clothing, a cherished garment. A devout man a rabbi, in fact, most devout Jewish males, would always wear a prayer shawl. They still do today. Sometimes you can see Orthodox Jews underneath their suit, call, suit coat. You can, you can see the prayer shawl, and you recognize it by all the tassels around the edge, all kinds of tassels. The tassels are meant to remind them of the ordinances and the decrees of God. It was a, meant to be this vivid picture, a picture woven together in fabric of living under the protective grace of God. This is how the rabbis would talk about it. They say, we live under these commandments. And these tassels remind us of the decrees of God. And we live under these commandments that exist for the healing of the world. The little corner, the corner tassels of the prayer shawls worn by, by ancient and modern followers of this tradition alike. This is called the kanaf. 
And over time, a wonderful tradition, this idea was born in Israel. You see it appear in places like Malachi in chapter 4. Unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. The word is kanaf. And over time, this idea arose in Israel that one day the Messiah would come. And in his kanaf, in his in a, on the corner of his, of his prayer shawl, within the protective grace of his healing wings, there would be healing. That may sound strange, but, but actually this idea has been with us for a long time. And whether you realize it or not, you sing it every Christmas. When you gather together as family or friends or in church, and you sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, what are the lines Light and life to all he brings. What comes next? Risen with healing in his wings. Kanaf. Healing happens. And they believed this in Israel. And then every once in a while, God would act in some remarkable, life-changing, earth-shattering way. There would be miracles and episodes of tremendous healing. And they're not just spread randomly through the Bible, but they come periodically. And they come at times in important eras when God is about to reveal something really important about what he is like and about what his kingdom is like. So a king named Hezekiah receives healing. And you ask the question, why? And then you begin to look at what was happening around the time of Hezekiah. It was a time of great reformation when the importance, the centrality of the decrees and principles of God was restored. A guy who's not even from Israel named Naaman is healed of leprosy. And again, you want to look at the circumstances surrounding that healing. And then one day, a rabbi named Jesus comes into the world He was famous as a teacher, but he was equally famous as a healer. It was fundamental to his ministry because what he was giving was a little foretaste of what life would be like in the kingdom of God, about what God was going to do in the end when he heals the whole world. And so this is Jesus' story. And we're going to read a little bit of it together. And if you'd like to follow along in your own Bibles We're in Mark chapter 5. We're going to start reading at verse 24. A large crowd followed, and they pressed around Jesus. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, and had spent all she had on those doctors. And yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. Let me tell you, one of the things that you get here is is kind of a backstage glimpse at the world of the gospel writers. I mean, this account of the healing of this woman who is plagued with a bleeding disorder, you find it in three of the gospels. We're reading it from the gospel of Mark, but Luke also tells this story. One of the fascinating things, though, is that when Luke tells you this story, you can look it up if you'd like after this, he leaves out the part about the woman suffering a great deal under the care of many doctors. And he leaves out the part about how she spent all of her money giving it to those doctors. 
Does anybody want to guess what profession Luke had? Anybody remember? Luke was a doctor. I'm just saying. Imagine being this woman. For 12 years, she's been suffering from this disorder, severe anemia. She's weak, no energy. She's suffered financially. She's lost all of her money. She's reduced now to the status of a beggar. She's suffering socially and spiritually. Because the law in the Old Testament is really clear about this. If she was in a state where she constantly suffered from bleeding, that would mean she was in a state of constantly being unclean. And that would mean that anybody that she came into contact with would likewise be unclean. It would mean the bed that she slept in would be unclean. The chair on which she sat would be unclean. If you sat on that chair after her, you would be unclean. There would be this stigma attached to her uncleanness. It would follow her everywhere that she went. You've all heard the kind of stupid things that people sometimes say to people who are suffering. Maybe if you just had a little bit more faith, you wouldn't suffer so much. Maybe if you hadn't sinned, you must have done something wrong if God has displeased with you and has afflicted you in this way. Well, she has lived with this stuff now for 12 years. Maybe she's a mom. I mean, most women were. That would mean she couldn't touch her own children. She couldn't hold them. If she did, that would make them unclean. Imagine never being able to tuck your kids into bed at night never being able to give them a hug. The child whacks their thumb with a hammer and go running to mom for some TLC. I wanted to call my mom on that day, I tell you. She wouldn't be able to respond and kiss it better and hold them tight. There's a good chance that she's married. Again, most women were. Her husband can't touch her. If he does, he's unclean. Maybe she's lost her marriage by now because of this. And every night she prays when she goes to bed, God, heal me. And every morning she wakes up, and some of you know what it's like, and she says, maybe today's the day. And then by the time she sets herself into bed again at night, she realizes, not today. And then somehow she hears about this rabbi, this Jesus, this healer, Who's coming? Let's read onward in verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. She gets this crazy idea. She hears that a healer is coming. She thinks, if I can just, if I can just touch him, if I can just get something good from him, just kind of this loose association. And so she she sneaks up on Jesus from behind. All three Gospels record that little detail. She comes up on him from behind. Why? Maybe she's afraid. But she has this idea, if I can just touch his clothes. Why does that thought occur to her? Could it be? Could it be? You, You understand that it's not just his clothes. That she's reaching for the corner of his garment grabbing hold of the tassels on his prayer shawl, the kanaf, the healing wings of the healing Messiah. It may well be that this woman is thinking, out of everyone in Israel, 
Maybe she's the only one thinking at the, t- at the time, the only one who gets it, that this might be the one that we've been waiting for. The one who has come with healing in his wings. If I could just touch his kanaf. If I could just touch the corner of his garment. It's an amazing story. Let's read onward. Immediately her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. It's an unbelievable moment. It's it's electric. At long last, she feels what it's like to be normal, to be whole. What it's like to be well. Then have you been sick for so long that you've forgotten what it's like to be well? And somewhere, as a smile lights up in her mind, if not on her face, she thinks, I, I got what I came for, healing from Jesus. It's the end of my story, and it's a happy ending. Except that it's, it's not the end of the story. At once, this is verse 30, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. And he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down at his feet and trembling with fear. Such an incredible story. Uh, we see Jesus both with his remarkable power, but also with his, his really vulnerable humanity. Healing goes out from him, and he knows it. This, this ability, this strength, this deposit that God had placed in him, he knows it's happened. But he's also human. And, and maybe in that moment, he's just not quite sure who got it. Or maybe he knew, but he wasn't about to let this important moment pass. He says, who touched me? The disciples say, you've got to be kidding me, Jesus. Look around. There's, There's crowds. Everybody's touching you. What do you mean? But Jesus knows that somebody knows. He looks around. There's a woman, and she knows. And she looks at Jesus, and Jesus looks at her. And she falls at his feet, and she's probably scared to death. Because remember, she'd broken the law. She touched a man, not just a man, a rabbi. She, with her disease, her disorder, had made him unclean. And then this remarkable phrase at the end of verse 33. And she told him the whole truth. I want to say for anybody who's here this morning who needs healing, and we're headed in that direction, we're going to have a time available for for sustained healing prayer at the end of our service. But I want to say that, that this verse, that it's important to hover here for a few minutes. It's important when you come to Jesus to come honestly, to come vulnerably, to come with the whole truth. This woman just falls at his feet, whatever it is for her. She cries out to him and says, Jesus, I I gave up long ago. I I didn't have enough faith. I didn't really believe. I never prayed like I should. I haven't been the kind of mom I should have been. There's no money left in the home. I'm a failure, a failure financially, a failure spiritually, whatever it is. 
And then she waits. And she waits with fear and trembling. She doesn't know what's going to happen. She broke the law. She made him unclean, she thinks. He's a rabbi. What's he going to do? This is Jesus' response. Daughter. Daughter, he says. Nobody's called her daughter in a long time. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And when he says daughter there, he he means that she's a daughter of Israel. It means that she is a child of God. Maybe you're wondering, I know I wonder as I read through this story, why Jesus stops to do this. A woman had already gotten her healing. That's what she wanted. She'd been suffering. She got healed. She got what she was looking for. Why this? Why this public event? Why this potentially embarrassing event? Why does he make her talk with him face to face in front of everybody else? Well, surely it must be because Jesus wants to offer something more than just a physical healing. He wants her to know him as the healer. It's because this has always been true about Jesus, that it's okay not to be okay. That you don't have to be afraid to come into his presence with whatever brokenness, sin, or disease is afflicting you. With Jesus, everybody is welcome. With Jesus, we know that nobody is perfect. But with Jesus, anything is possible. With Jesus, and that means here, that means for us, that means in our church, it's okay not to be okay. You don't have to be okay. In fact, Jesus kind of specializes in the people who are not okay. In fact, the people who always think that they are always okay, they don't always do really well with Jesus. Okay, let's go back to the story. And maybe if you were glancing a little bit before those verses that we read and you're glancing a little bit afterwards, you'll remember that this healing is situated within another context. If you glance back in the story, you'll see that this whole episode begins with a wealthy synagogue leader, a man named Jairus, asking that Jesus come attend to somebody in need in his household. And they're on their way to do that. And while they're on their way, they're interrupted by this woman, this this anonymous woman. And this actually happens pretty often in the Gospels. This is just kind of a tangent, a little bonus teaching here this morning. But in the Gospel of Mark, Mark does this on several occasions. One story gets stuffed inside of another story. It's sometimes called a Markin sandwich. Or if you'd like, you could call it a Lucan Twinkie in the Gospel of Luke. Is anybody a Twinkie fan? It's, it's that surprising, cream, surprising, creamy white filling inside that makes that golden, spongy outside good. When you get to a situation like this, a Markin sandwich, it's always good to stop and ask, why are these two things 
sandwiched together? What's the relationship between them? And it's more than just understanding each of the stories by themselves. There's something beautiful and something deeper and something surprising about Jesus that the gospel writers want us to know that we can only know when we get the sandwich in our hands. Look at the contrast between the two. Jairus gets there first. Maybe by this time Jairus is thinking, hey lady, take a number. I was here before you. Jairus is a man. He's a man with a name, a well-known name. He's a wealthy man. We know he's a man with money. He has servants. He has status. He's a leader in the synagogue. On the other hand, the second story, in the middle of this sandwich, we have a woman, anonymous. We, we don't know her name. She has no status. She has no money. Whatever money she had, she'd given away long ago to doctors. She's considered unclean. She's an outcast. So we have Jairus. He's a somebody. And then we have this anonymous woman. She's a nobody. And Jesus interrupts the somebody to be with a nobody. See, one of the things that this is telling us, and don't miss this, it's the point of the sandwich, is that with Jesus, nobodies become somebody. With Jesus, the last becomes first. And in the kingdom, nobody is a nobody. In the kingdom, you're not a nobody. I'm not sure the situation, the specific specific situation in your life this morning. I don't know where you need healing in your life or whether you feel like you need it at all. I don't know how long you feel like you've needed it. I don't know what's going on. But I know this. Healing happens. And I know that in God's eyes, you're somebody. And we know this. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And so as we prepare to go to God for healing, I want to ask you, where where is it that you need healing? Where do you need God to touch something inside of you? Our God is a healing God. I'll tell you a little bit about my own life. When I got married, more than a little while ago now, I I was way more emotionally immature than I am now. I'm not the towering juggernaut of maturity that I've become. Can I get an amen to that? No. I I really thought I was going to be the greatest husband in the world. Uh, I thought we would have an exemplary marriage But I was carrying this weird kind of woundedness or maybe neediness inside of me where I think my desire to have people see a great marriage was was more important to me than the desire to do the things that would make sure we had a great marriage. And so sometimes there were these seasons of of forced artificial closeness or when Karina did something that I didn't like, she said something I didn't like 
like the emotional giant that I was, I would just get overwhelmed and I would have this cold Canadian response where I just put a lot of distance between us and I would go away and sulk and, and cope or not cope on my own. And this probably started to get more pronounced when we had kids, and that dynamic went on. It wasn't the only dynamic in our marriage. There were good things in our marriage. There were, there were joyful things. But this one, this, this undercurrent, it was real, and it, it went on for well over a decade until one time it just it finally bottomed out. I distanced myself again. I was cold and withdrawn. Maybe I was feeling guilty about it and had tried to make momentary amends and get closer again. Karina said, no, we're, we're not doing that again. And confronted me, and rightfully so. Said, there's something inside of you that you need to get healed. This isn't just about me. Now, I'm, I'm not leaving you. I'm not going anywhere. But I can't keep doing this anymore. Something inside of you needs to be healed. I remember it vividly. It's been, well, it's been a while ago now. It set off in me a year of painful soul-searching and confession and repentance like nothing I'd ever known up until that point. See, it was okay for me to work with other people towards their healing, but I was never going to go see a counselor myself. Now I was in so much pain that I was seeing two of them, one, one in person, the other over the phone. All I could do in that season of life was just crank out sermons and then bring all of this pain to God. And I got a journal, and I, I would write in it every day, and sometimes I would, I would tear off little notes, and I'd leave them for Karina, trying to show that maybe there was some progress in, in this tired old soul. Some days I would just wake up and write, Good morning, ball of pain. It was there, and... It's like a pit in my stomach. It was there all the time. Until finally with God, I just said, God, I, I need to tell you the whole truth. Have you ever done that? I mean, there are people who go their whole lives with God, their whole lives in the church, and they never tell the whole truth. There was just so much junk inside of me. A lot of it having to do with the need for approval and a need to please people and, and some of the falseness that was within me. What does everybody else think of me? Because that's, boy, that's really so important, isn't it? What would I do if people and, and stuff just came vomiting out of me? God help. But over time, in the humility of seeking help and asking for prayer and naming the truth, God began to heal me. Not wholly, not, not fully. That's a day I'm still looking forward to. And not without scars. But I'm telling you this as a reminder that, that God heals, but sometimes he heals only when we come honestly with our lives. J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings, he, he loved that image 
of God as a healer. It was probably the central image to him and his understanding of God. Tolkien was a devout Christ follower. If you read his work, you know how often he uses the image of wounding and scars and then healing and restoration. The wounds that, that Frodo and Gollum bore as they are carried as they bore the ring, the, the land itself that was wounded in Mordor. And over and over again comes this image of a wound that needs to be healed. And I love this line from Tolkien. He writes, For it is said in old lore, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be known. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer. Tolkien would write about how in the ancient world, it was thought that that kings had the power to heal because of their own strength and greatness and power. Except for this one, this one king, who was risen with healing in his wings. And this one was different from the others because he doesn't heal out of a place of strength. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. By the head that bore a crown of thorns and bled, by the back that bore a splintered cross, by the side that was pierced with scars, by the hands that had nails driven through them. The hands of that crucified king are the hands of a healer. And healing happens. We're not in control of our lives. We're not in control of everything, but God is at work in all things. And it is his desire to heal. So here's the question I leave with you. Where is it that you need healing in your life? What part of you do you need God to touch and heal? And what we're going to do in just a moment when I'm through speaking and we've had a chance to celebrate the Lord's Supper, this place of grace and healing, is we're going to make our pastors and our prayer leaders available and open up a healing room for prayer. And if you want to, you can seek them out. Of course, you could always be praying where you are, and maybe there is a safe and trusted confidant there with you, and you can seek them out. But if that's not the case... We would love the opportunity to wrap ourselves around you virtually in prayer. If by any chance you're you're watching this at a later date or a later time, here is our prayer email. You can reach out to us at any time, and we will respond, and, and it will be our honor to pray with you, whatever it is. Maybe you need healing from a broken heart or broken relationship, or you've suffered a severe loss. 
Maybe it's failure and it just weighs on you and you've never been willing to tell the whole truth about it and you carry it in secret and it gets heavier and heavier. Maybe there's guilt. Maybe there's shame. Maybe there was an abortion or an affair. Maybe you've been abused. Maybe you were neglected. Maybe you got fired. Maybe you feel like you're doing badly in something. Maybe you're a parent and you feel like you're failing your kids or or you're a child and you feel like you're estranged from your parents. We're going to have a healing time at the end of the service. And I know uh, maybe we don't normally do things like this. We're Baptists. We're not Pentecostal. What is this altar call to come for healing? But we want to give you time and space to come. There will be a number of us waiting for you. Name the truth before God. And then allow us to place our hands on you virtually and pray for healing. So in the chat, we're going to put it there now and we'll leave it there, is the link to a healing prayer room on Zoom. You'll also find it in the description, in the annotation for the video. And at the end of the service, after we've had a chance to celebrate the Lord's Supper and sing and bless each other, we invite you to this place. And as you come I hope you know that we're cheering for you. And this isn't a place where we cheer for perfect people. This is a place where we cheer for imperfect people who bring their imperfections and their neediness to God because here nobody is perfect. And here you will always be welcome. And here we pray because we know that anything is possible. And we know the rightful king to whom we pray. Because there is healing in his hands. I hope you will come. You join me as we pray. Close your eyes and bow your heads. God, in humility, we come to you as the great healer of our lives. In this year that has focused so much on the medical community, so much on on disease and epidemic and vaccination and treatment. We want to acknowledge that ultimately you are the fountain from which all healing flows. And we want to find ourselves sheltered under the healing protection of your wings. Now as we come to the table, to remember those crucified hands, to remember that torn flesh, to remember that sacrificial love. We acknowledge that that is the spring from which eternal healing flows. And so into your presence we come. In Christ's name, amen.